0: Last time we spoke about the beginning of the mop-up operations after the Fall of Munda, the amphibious invasion of Vela Lavella, and the fall of Kiska. New Georgia had become a lost cause for the Japanese with the Fall of Munda, and now all efforts were being made to perform a withdrawal while buying time for forces to be brought over to places like Bougainville. Admiral Halsey ultimately chose to bypass Kolumbangera, and he targeted Vela La Vela, which saw a successful amphibious invasion with a minor naval scuffle during the process. Then the Americans and Canadians invaded Kiska at long last. Although there were numerous reports that the island was abandoned, it was decided to go forward with the invasion. It was thought, at minimum, it would be a good training exercise for the men. All they found were booby traps and some cute abandoned dogs, as they ushered in the conclusion to the Aleutian Islands campaign. This episode is Into the Central Pacific. welcome back to the pacific war podcast week by week and i'm your dutiful host craig watson but before we can begin i just want to remind you all this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at youtube perhaps you want to learn a bit more about world war ii kings and generals has an assortment of episodes on world war ii and so much more so go give them a look over at youtube so please subscribe to kings and generals over at youtube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com kings and generals and hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fallen Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you were still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I'm about to release a historic film review on the movie Oppenheimer. Also, if you haven't already done so, check out my Patreon over at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, where I have exclusive podcasts. My latest is a two-part series on the failures and responsibilities of Emperor Hirohito. Check it out. It would mean a lot to me. So it's been nearly a year since the start of the Allied offensive in the Pacific. Way back when the Japanese were trying to recover from the Midway disaster, the Americans had no idea they could manage a major land victory. For nearly a year, the Allied campaigns in New Guinea and the Solomons showcased what both sides were capable of. But the U.S. Navy wanted something else. They wanted a drive through the Central Pacific. Now to begin a thrust into the Central Pacific meant performing two parallel Pacific campaigns, north and south of the equator. Admiral Nimitz did not yet possess the naval, specifically carrier forces, required to wage a Central Pacific offensive. Hell, legions of troops required months of amphibious training. It was an enormous feat. Admiral Halsey likewise never ceased calling for reinforcements to carry his fight through the central and northern Solomons. Ever since the Casablanca Conference, Admirals King and Nimitz had been analyzing the idea of a central thrust into the Pacific. They were looking specifically at a thrust into the direction of Truk and Guam, and to hit the Marshall Islands. The victory over Guadalcanal had allowed the Allies to secure lines of communication and supply to Australia, and King presumed Rabaul would fall in 1943. On June the 10th, King had been demanding hard deadlines for a Central Pacific campaign, stating, In order that effective momentum of offensive operations can be attained and maintained, firm timing must be set up for all areas. The Joint Chiefs of Staff four days later told Nimitz to prepare an invasion of the Marshall Islands with a tentative sailing date of November 15, 1943. As for the direct thrust, King declared, establishing a base in the Northwestern Marshals and then proceeding to truck in the Marianas. To pull this off, MacArthur was expected to release the 1st Marine Division in time to participate in the operation, with most of Halsey's naval and amphibious forces as well. As you can imagine, MacArthur was outraged and he objected to the demands of his cartwheel campaign to preclude any transfer of troops or ships from his theater to Nimitz. MacArthur wanted covering support from the Pacific Fleet's new Fast Carrier Task Forces to help raid Rabaul, Truk, and other Japanese bases on a southern route. Admiral Halsey likewise was anxious about withdrawing aircraft carriers from the South Pacific area to support operations north of the equator. He warned Nimitz on June 25th that if air power were diverted from the drive on Rabaul, It would seriously jeopardize our chances of success at what appears to be the most critical stage of the campaign. Without borrowing forces from the South Pacific, Nimitz could not realistically tackle the Marshals until early 1944, and many members of the planning staff counseled patience. They argued to Nimitz the new offensive should await the arrival of a large fleet of Essex carriers, By February or March of 1944, they predicted a much-expanded 5th Fleet could simply steam into the Marshalls and seize four or five of the largest Japanese bases simultaneously. If the combined fleet came out to fight, such an American force would willingly and confidently give them battle. But Admiral King simply wanted action in 1943. He insisted the northern line of attack should be open before the final assault on Rabaul. This would prevent the enemy from concentrating their defenses against either prong of the westward advance. Enemy territory simply had to be taken, somewhere in the Central Pacific by the end of the year. There was a lot of arguing going about. The Joint Chiefs of Staff had clearly intimated that the Philippines were to be approached through the Central Pacific, but MacArthur concluded a drive through the Marshalls and Carolines would have to occur without land-based aircraft support. Thus, it would be slow and extremely costly to naval power and shipping. MacArthur argued the Central Pacific route was unwise and thought, after Rabaul was captured, it should be the Southwest Pacific forces advancing along the northern coast of New Guinea and onwards to the Philippines. This would require the neutralization of various islands like Pallas and others in the Banda and Arafura Seas to protect their flanks. This long-range plan that he prepared was designated Reno. Now, all of this, of course, was intended to cut Japan off from her vast riches in the Dutch East Indies, the thing keeping her war machine alive. The British also had their own desires and applied much pressure onto their American allies, prompting General Marshall to assure them that the Gilbert's Marshalls Caroline's campaign would be undertaken with, quote, "...with the resources available in the theater. During the Quadrant Conference, the British chiefs had agreed to back King's demand for resources in the Central Pacific, in return for more forces against Nazi Germany. However, during the Trident Conference in May, which was not concerned so much with the Pacific strategy, the Joint Chiefs of Staff submitted a plan titled the Strategic Plan for the Defeat of Japan, which called for a large, sustained air offensive against the home islands in preparation for an invasion. For this all to occur, China had to be maintained, and that meant the Americans and British would need to fight their way into China, finding a good secure port to move materials properly. Most likely this would be Hong Kong. In the meantime, the Americans, British and Chinese would work together to recapture Burma to try and drive through the Strait of Malacca to Hong Kong via a series of amphibious operations. The Americans would also attempt a drive through the Celebes Sea to Hong Kong from the Central Pacific aided by some subsidiary efforts from the South and Southwest Pacific areas, but good luck getting a penny from MacArthur. The Central Pacific was the most advantageous and logical route because it was shorter than the Southern route. It would require less ships, less troops, less supplies, and the bases in the Marshalls, Marianas, and Carolines would isolate Japan from her overseas empire. The Japanese would only be able to mount limited air and ground forces on the islands in the Central Pacific, but... Nonetheless, the American planners were forced to make twin drives along the central and southern axis. It had been argued President FDR was swayed by Marshall's insistent demands for a southern push because MacArthur held considerable political weight and could have been made a Republican nominee for presidency in 1944. There were positives to running twin operations, of course. For one thing, it would prevent the Japanese from being able to guess the time and place of forthcoming advances, keeping them off balance. It also allowed for opportunities of mutual support. Some of the operations would require a behemoth amount of resources. Take, for example, estimations they ran for the capture of the Bismarck Archipelago, which was required to secure the line of communications to Australia and provide access to the Celebi Sea. They estimated it would require seven divisions, five of which needed to be amphibious units. If Rabaul fell or was neutralized, perhaps the division numbers would be a bit less. The Marshall operation would require two reinforced amphibious divisions, four heavy bombardment and two fighter groups of land-based aircraft. On top of that was the naval aspect. They estimated that they needed four battleships, three more auxiliary carriers, 12 cruisers, 63 destroyers, 24 attack transports, 44 tank landing ships, and landing craft. Garrison forces would include one reinforced division, 10 defense battalions, 545 planes, and 18 motor torpedo boats. For the Carolines, the Combined Chiefs estimated they would require three reinforced amphibious divisions, two heavy bomber groups, 10 carriers of the Enterprise or Essex class, 7 auxiliary carriers, 4 modern battleships, 9 old battleships, 31 cruisers, 108 destroyers, 20 submarines, 45 attack transports, 15 attack cargo ships, 6 LCDs, 3 headquarters ships, and a bunch of other auxiliary vessels. To garrison, the islands would take 2 reinforced divisions and 3 defense battalions, plus more aircraft. Talk about a hell of a shopping list. By the end of the year, it was expected that one Marine and three Army divisions would be allocated to the Central Pacific, while the South Pacific would gain two Marines, five U.S. Army, and one New Zealand Division, and in the Southwest Pacific, four U.S. Infantry, one U.S. Airborne, one U.S. Marine, and 11 Australian Divisions. After calculating all of that, the Joint Chiefs estimated two more divisions would be needed for the Marshals, two more for the Carolines, and three more for New Guinea. The strategic plan got the stamp of approval by the combined chiefs of staff on May twenty-second. For the planned Central Pacific Offensive, Nimitz decided his first objective would be the Marshall Islands. Their seizure was essential to extend the lines of communication to the Selby Sea and to shorten the routes to Australia. From the Marshalls, land-based aircraft could support naval operations against the enemy's communication lines. And there was also the possibility that by hitting the marshals, this would lure out the combined fleet for another big fight. By July the 20th, it was decided that instead of directly hitting the marshals, which would be extremely costly requiring a large force, they would instead capture Nauru and then the Gilbert Islands as a preliminary springboard to invade the Marshalls. There had been two competing suggestions debated at SYNC Pack HQ. Captain Forrest Sherman, the Chief of Staff to Vice Admiral John Henry Towers, advocated to recapture Wake Island and to employ it as a springboard to invade the Marshalls. Wake was around 500 miles south of the Marshalls. Admiral Spruance favored opening a campaign south and east where the fleet could count on greater land-based aircraft support from rear bases in the South Pacific. He was the one advocating to invade the Gilberts, which were 600 miles southeast of the Marshalls. Spruance persuaded Nimitz, who persuaded King, and thus the Gilberts won the day. Codenamed Operation Galvanic was the offensive to simultaneously invade the Elise Islands, Gilbert Islands, and Nauru by November the 15th of 1943. For Operation Galvanic, Nimitz would have at his disposal all surface forces of the Pacific Fleet, the air forces of the Pacific excluding those in the South and Southwest Pacific areas, elements of the 7th Air Force, the 2nd Marine Division of Major General Julian Smith over in New Zealand, currently performing amphibious training, three aviation engineer or construction battalions, a port battalion, and three marine defense battalions. The 7th Air Force, led by Major General Willis Hale, had already carried out some reconnaissance and bombing missions against Nauru and the Gilberts back in January, February, and April. In spite of some heavy interception, they managed to hit the runway on Nauru, and a local phosphate plant, as well as some installations on Tarawa. The 7th Air Force were utilizing air bases on Canton and Funafuti, which were the only ones in range at the Gilberts. To seize the Elise Islands and build new airfields, Nimitz ordered the 5th and 7th Defense Battalions and the 2nd Airdrome Battalion, accompanied by the 16th Naval Construction Battalion, to conduct neutralization and reconnaissance. Nimitz sought to build new airfields at Nukufuta and Nanomea, which were around 600 miles south and 350 miles east of Tarawa. On August the 18th, an advanced survey party landed at Nanomea determining it to hold no enemy presence, thus the first elements of the 7th Defense Battalion began occupying it ten days later. On August the 22nd, an advanced party of the 2nd Airdrome Battalion landed at Nuku Fital, finding no enemy presence, allowing the remainder of the battalion to follow suit five days later. Transforming the atolls into airbases was rapid work. By September 7th, a 5,000-foot airstrip was operational on Nanomea, and by the end of the month, a full squadron of aircraft were finally operating from it. Over on Nuku-Fetau, work was slower, but its strip would be operational by October 9th. Back on August 11th, the 804th Aviation Engineer Battalion was sent to develop Baker Island, a already American-held island 480 miles east of the Gilberts. They began their work on September the 1st, taking a week to build a strip capable of supporting fighters. All of this gave Nimitz and Hale the bases they needed to prepare for Operation Galvanic. Now over in the Southwest Pacific, Generals MacArthur and Blamey were continuing their planned invasion of Ley, codenamed Operation Postern. By early 1943 MacArthur had devised plans and made Blamey the commander of Allied Land Forces, but only in name. As we have seen in this series, the creation of the Alamo Force led by General Kruger was MacArthur's attempt at seizing overall command. This led Blamey to gradually realize his only functions would be that of commander of the Australian military forces. MacArthur would also reconstitute the United States Air Forces back into the USAFE, for his command in the Philippines with himself as commander later on. Now, the original date for Operation Postern was August 1st, and it was to be held in two stages. The first was to be an amphibious assault near the coast of Ley. The second was an air-ground operation against Nadzab airfield to its west. This would prevent the enemy from reinforcing Ley over land. The amphibious operation would be carried out by General Vasey's 7th Division, who would depart Milna Bay and move north of Buna to land near Leh utilizing small landing craft. Admiral Barbie estimated it would require 65 LCVPS, that is, Landing Craft Vehicle Personnel, or better known as Higgin boats. It would also need LCTs from the 2nd Engineer Special Brigade. To train for the operation, the 7th would be sent to Trinity Beach near Cairns. However, continuous outbreaks of malaria led it to being believed the unit could not be used without endangering the civilian population. Major General George Wooten's 9th Division, not yet exposed to the conditions on Green Hell and Malaria Free, ended up taking the amphibious role. After two weeks of amphibious training with Higgins boats, the 9th moved to Milna Bay on August the 12th, and they would be followed up by General Heavy's units who would help further train them at Morrowby. Now, I had mentioned the second part was an air ground operation. Originally, it was to consist of the 2 and 503rd American Parachute Battalion to take the airfield. Then the 25th and 21st Brigades of the 7th Division were to cross the Markham River and assist the Parachute Battalion to occupy the area. But it would turn out, when they arrived to Markham, the Australians first had to advance through the Bulldog Road to reach Wao. And although a ton of work had been done on the Bulldog Road, it had not yet reached the Markham River. At first, General Berryman boldly said to General Kenney that he bet him a bottle of whiskey that a jeep could simply cover the gap to the road by August 1st. But he lost the bet. Thus, it was decided transport aircraft would be required to take the 7th Division directly from Port Moresby into the overgrown landing ground at Nadzab. The Parachute Battalion would not receive any support from Markham. MacArthur decided to instead employ the full 503rd Parachute Regiment led by Colonel Kenneth Kinsler to hit Nadzab on August the 8th. Now thanks in a large part to the cooperation between Generals Vesey, Herring, Whitehead, and Kenny, the planning for the operation went quite well. Extensive air and land reconnaissance of the area was the key to success. With all the preparation done, D-Day for the 9th Division's amphibious assault was scheduled for September the 1st, and Z-Day for the 7th Division's operation against NADZAP would be September the 2nd. And like all good operations, a diversion was going to be implemented. General Savage, or better said, General Savage's forces had been conducting a series of attacks in the Salamaua area for months. The Salamaua Magnet had successfully convinced General Nakano the Allies intended to hit Salamaua. General Nakano had also believed holding Salamao would keep Lei safe. General Adachi would go on the record to state orders given to him and other forces were to hold Salama as long as possible, probably until the last man if it came down to it. Adachi knew if Salamao fell, Lei was pretty much a lost cause. The irony, of course, was this all led to the troops being pulled away from Lei to bolster Salamao when Ley was in fact always the initial target. Air supremacy over the Hawaiian Gulf was going to be a necessity for Operation Postern to be successful. Generals Berryman and Kenny needed to acquire new airfields that would be used to neutralize Wewak and Madang, the two key Japanese airbases in the region. The Allies began building airfields at Benabena and Tsili Tsili, which could act as advanced fighter bases and refueling points. Benabena had already been a functioning airstrip, but Whitehead wanted to develop it further. Kenny was concerned as he knew the Japanese were aware of the site. Kenny wanted to divert the enemy's attention away from the airfield being built at Tsili Tsili, which the Japanese did not know about yet. The Japanese were tossing wave after wave of air raids against Binabina, Bina, doing minimal damage. Meanwhile, a military road was being constructed from Bogajim on the northern coast of the valley of Midjim River to Yala and Yokopi, and it was intended to extend past the Finistri Range into the Ramu Valley. On August 1st, the New Guinea Force HQ estimated the road would reach Ramu Valley within about eight weeks. The development of the road and other activity in the Ramu Valley was drawing attention from the Japanese. Thus, the 2nd Independent Company were sent to reinforce the 2nd 7th at Binabina. As all of this was occurring, the secret construction work at Tsilitsili Tsili raged on using some rather innovative ideas. The construction workers were using camouflage and careful timing of flights to hide the existence of Tsilitsili's airfield, and they were managing to do this successfully for over two months. An enormous amount of air transport and equipment was allocated for the task. The 871st Airborne Engineers Battalion were sent in to hammer the job out and soon three dry-weather runways were operational by September. Over on the Japanese side, they were reorganizing their air forces in New Guinea. After receiving alarming reports of enemy airfields being constructed at Mount Hagen and Binabina, knowing full well these would threaten their airfields at Wewakamedang, it was decided the air strength of New Guinea would be bolstered by the 7th Air Division of Lieutenant General Sudo Inosuke. From June the 19th onwards, aircraft of the 7th Division began arriving at Wewak from the Dutch East Indies. The 6th Air Division had moved its HQ from Rabaul to Wewak on July the 9th of 1943, 324 aircraft strong. The 7th Air Division brought another 156 aircraft. Alongside this, the 4th Area Army was brought over to Rabaul on August the 6th, placed under the command of General Imamura's 8th Area Army. Additionally, to support the defense of Wewak General Adachi was planning to toss 3,000 soldiers under Lieutenant General Katagiri Shiguro's 20th Division against Binabina, Bina, while Lieutenant General Manogoro's 41st Division would occupy Mount Hagen. Such operations were scheduled to begin in early September. A detachment of the 30th Independent Engineer Regiment of Lieutenant Kitamoto Masemichi was sent over to Kayapit alongside patrols further into the Ramu Valley. They gradually occupied Dampu and Wisa. But the increasing Allied threats to Salamau and Lei prompted General Adachi to postpone the Bina Bina attack until August the 1st, and as a result, Lei's airbase was being abandoned. Since early July, Lei was facing a substantial issue maintaining aviation fuel. It had been a point of refueling for aircraft going between Rabaul and other airfields like Medang and Wewak. Alongside this, Ley was within Allied medium bomber range, and the threat prompted the Japanese to build three new airfields on the northwestern coast of New Guinea at But, Dagua, and the Borum Plantation. It was the 20th and the 41st Divisions who ended up providing most of the labor to construct these airfields. On August the 14th, saw its first two squadrons of P 39 Airacobras of the 35th Fighter Group, led by Lieutenant Colonel Malcolm Moore. These arrived just in time to meet the beginning enemy attacks. Japanese aircraft had finally spotted the secret airfield during some reconnaissance flights on August 11th. On the morning of August 15th, seven Ki-48 Lilies escorted by 36 Ki-43 Oscars attacked Sili The bombers were intercepted immediately, and all were shot down by 26 cobras and three Lightnings. However, the Oscars did manage to shoot down two C-47s of the 21st Troop Carrier Squadron. The other C-47s scrambled for their lives, escaping back to Port Moresby by flying at treetop level. The Allied fighters then intercepted the Oscars, shooting three Oscars down, at the cost of four Aero Cobras. The following day saw another raid, but thunderbolts and lightnings intercepted the raiders, downing some 15 Oscars. After receiving such a blow, the Japanese commanders at WIWAC decided to conserve further air strength. Unbeknownst to them, the situation was far more dire than they thought. You see, the Japanese commanders did not believe the enemy fighters and medium bombers had the range to hit WIWAC. Now to just geek out a bit, when such aircraft like Mitchells first arrived in Australia, they were equipped with a lower turret. But when they began performing operations in New Guinea, it required low-altitude flying, and thus the turrets became useless. So they removed them, and they placed forward-firing guns at the nose instead. General Kenny's Air Depot at Townsville worked tirelessly to modify 172 Mitchells between July and September of 1943. The removal of the large turrets allowed for an additional square-shaped 11,500-liter metal fuel tank to be installed which was suspended by hooks from a bomb shackle. These fuel tanks gave the aircraft an extra two hours of flying time, just enough to give them the range to hit WIWAC. These tanks were very vulnerable to catching fire during combat or from crash landings, so they were made dischargeable. A minor innovation that would make all the difference. On August 1st, aerial photographs indicated the Japanese had eight medium bombers, 31 light bombers, 69 fighters at Weiwak and Borum, plus 34 medium and 34 light bombers with 24 fighters at Dagua and Butt. Thus, Kenny elected to hit them, and he had at his disposal two heavy bomber groups of the 43rd and 90th bomb groups with 64 bombers alongside two medium groups, the 3rd attack group, and the 38th bomb groups with 58 modified Mitchells. Kenny's plan was to toss eight squadrons of heavy bombers for night raids against WIWAC's four airfields, followed up by five squadrons of Mitchells. Fighters could refuel at Silly to help escort, and boy, oh boy, would they. An unprecedented 99 fighter escorts would take part in the raids. On the night of August the 16th, the first raid occurred seeing 12 B-17 and 38 Liberators take off from Port Moresby, and all but two reached WIWAC by midnight. For three hours, Colonels Harry Hawthorne and Arthur Rogers led the 43rd and 90th Bombardment Groups to pound the four airfields causing tremendous damage. Countless aircraft tried to take off the next day at Borham only to fail due to damage to the runway and the aircraft. The next morning, two squadrons of Mitchells of Lieutenant Colonel Brian O'Neill's 38th Bomb Group left Port Morrisby to hit Daguan But while two squadrons of Colonel Donald Hall's 3rd Attack Group would hit Wewak and Borum. They would also be employing some brand new toys, the first parachute-retarded fragmentation bombs, or also known as paraphrags. They had been developed from standard 10 kilogram fragmentation bombs, which were carried in a honeycomb rack in the bomb bay. A small parachute slowed and straightened out the course of the bomb, allowing the bombers to get out of the blast range before it exploded. Further work was also going into the development of daisy cutters. These were bombs wrapped with wire to iron rods onto them that produced a ground-level fragmentation effect when used with a ground-proximity fuse. It's some real nerd stuff. The third group bombers ended up catching some newly-arrived Japanese aircraft perfectly lined up each side of the runways. The Mitchells strafed them before dropping 786 10-kilogram parafrag bombs, annihilating 60 aircraft. Meanwhile, the 38th Group's Mitchells faced some issues discharging their auxiliary fuel tanks, leading only three bombers to reach Dagua and none to Butte. The three who reached Dagua strafed and low-level bombed with 105 10-kilogram paraphrags, destroying and damaging at least 17 aircraft, and intercepting a single Oscar. That's really not a bad haul for just three Mitchells. The following day, Kenny tried to repeat the raids, but this time only half of the 49 heavy bombers reached their targets, and the bombing was quite inaccurate. However, most of the 62 Mitchells reached the target this time, but they would be pounced upon by Japanese fighters and anti-aircraft fire from an enemy that was really, really prepared for them this time. A flight led by Major Ralph Chelly, commanding the 405th Bomb Squadron, was jumped by nearly a dozen Oscars. Chelli's plane was badly hit, his right engine and wing caught fire. Yet despite this, Chelli led his flight across Dagua Airfield before crashing into the ocean. He would be captured and sent to Rabaul, where he would later be executed. For his brave actions, Chelli was awarded the Medal of Honor. In the end, 15 Oscars were destroyed at the cost of two Lightnings and one Mitchell. Two additional raids were conducted on August 20th and the 21st. The 5th Air Force claimed to have destroyed 20 enemy aircraft on the 20th and 70 on the final day, half of which were shot down in air combat by lightnings. An estimated 174 Japanese aircraft were put out of action during these attacks, almost 90 of which came from Wiwak's total air strength, around 200 strong. Even before it had a chance to derail the Battle for Ley, the 4th Air Army had been completely annihilated. Wiwak was neutralized. The door was open to Smash Leigh. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me, And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm about to release my historic review of the film Oppenheimer. Also, please don't forget, I now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, where you can find exclusive podcasts. So if there's a subject you really want to hear me talk about, and hell, it doesn't have to be about the Pacific War. Your boy likes the Roman Republic, for example, Go over there and give me a holler." A ton of planning was raging on and now there was to finally be twin operations to thrust into the Central Pacific and the South Pacific. With some fancy new toys, Kenny's Air Forces had all but smashed what the Japanese had created to defend Lei. Now the door was wide open for Ley to be assaulted.